Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series into Jonah. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Have you guys found Jonah? We're going to be in Jonah chapter 4 this morning. As you guys are turning, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, again, we just uh, thank you so much for the time that we have now to look into your word. Um, We pray that you would just help us to be attentive to to your truth, God. Open our eyes, help us to, to see the truth in the word. Open our ears to hear it. Open our hearts to receive it, God. Um, transform our lives that we might uh, just be a reflection of what you are doing in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. And, and certainly as we continue our sermon series through Jonah, God, I just I continue to pray and so grateful for many, many people who have shared with me by email, um, neighbors, friends, family members who they're trying to reach out to and share the gospel with. Um, I pray that uh, just the people that you've put into our lives, the situations, the relationships that we have, that you would give us ample opportunities to speak the gospel clearly and boldly at the right time. Help us to be sensitive to your spirit, to do that well in a way that would be an attraction to Christ. Help us to do it with kindness, with gentleness, but also, also with the truth of the gospel. And we pray all these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Jonah chapter 4 starts out, and Jonah is a very angry prophet, and so I just want to kind of share a few stories about what makes me angry. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin, if you guys, many of you know, uh, Milwaukee, just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and it's really interesting what happens at our house now in Tulsa. We've got three kids, and uh, Tulsa is not known for its snowstorms, right? We might get like maybe one week of snow, and it's great. We get two inches, and the whole city shuts down. It's, uh, it's perfect. It always gets a few snow, snow days almost every year. But when it snows here in Tulsa, it's interesting. Like, all of, all of my kids are extremely excited when it snows. They bring out the snow pants, the boots, the hats, the gloves, and we got all this stuff because... Often we go up to Wisconsin and visit family, and and so it's readily available to us. They go outside and they sled in the snow. They run around in the driveway. They make snowmen. They just can't wait for the snow to start melting so you can do snowballs and pelt each other. And it's great. They just have a blast when it snows. Me, on the other hand, I go to a little bit of a different realm in my world. Growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, it snowed from about Thanksgiving time until the end of April every year. It was six months of winter, and rarely was it Christmas in Wisconsin. And I couldn't stand it, because when it snowed, for me, here's what that meant. Me and my brother were getting out our shovels, waking up two hours earlier before school, before my dad left for work. We were shoveling the driveway. We were shoveling the walk so that everybody could get to the the school bus at the corner where we lived. We were slaving when it snowed. It meant we couldn't get out as much as we liked to. It meant the grocery store snacks were going to be more infrequent than they were at our house. You had to plan everything around these great crazy snowstorms, and it was always snowing in Wisconsin. So when it snows, my kids, again, 
They're going 90 to nothing, ear to ear, great times. Dad, on the other hand, is like, I can't believe this. No, I got to go get salt for the driveway. I got to go clear the driveway myself now. I got to go do all this other stuff. I got to come check on here, make sure the pipes aren't freezing, make sure everything's handled. The snow's shoveled in the parking lot here. The, the walkways are shoveled there. And I go to this, like, this kind of like angry place. And so here's what I've learned. Anger is natural. Anger is natural. And it's natural because God has given us all his image as his image bearers. We know that God gets angry. And he wants us to be angry at the same things that he's angry at. I've also learned that anger is learned. You can look out at people, experiences, at different things. The reason why I was so angry at the snow is because my parents were angry at the snow. And I've developed this anger. Um, and that's not to, uh, you know, say that it's a good thing. Proverbs 22, 24 through 25 says this, Do not make friends with an hot-tempered person. Do not associate with someone easily angered. Or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared in it. Anger is the justice emotion. All of us become very moral in our own worlds when we experience and when we exhibit anger. And this morning, I want to just look at four verses in Jonah, Jonah 4, 1 through 4. And the first thing that we're going to see is that Jonah was this angry prophet. But his anger that was produced on the outside is really just a symptom. It's the fruit of a deeper root issue that Jonah had on the inside. Jonah is a, a very, just like Brian was saying, self-centered, self-justifying. He is a religious a heart in a religious wrong way prophet, and he's got a major issue. And so we're going to see three warning signs that we might suffer with the same self-justifying, self-centered heart issues that Jonah had if. When people get healed, we get angry. You might be a self-justifying religious person if when people get healed, you get angry. Or, number two, when you're not in control, you start complaining. Number three, when unable to forgive, you continue judging. Three points this morning. When people get healed, you get angry. When you're not in control, you start complaining. When unable to forgive, you continue judging. Good sermon. You're going to be encouraged this morning. I promise you. All right. I probably could have like slanted that in the positive instead of the negative, but it is what it is. Um, number one, you might be a self-justifying religious person if when people get healed, you get angry. Look down at verse one, Jonah chapter four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. If you're just joining us for the sermon series, let me just catch you up really quickly. Jonah was a prophet who was called by God to an exceedingly wicked city, the city of Nineveh. And he was called to go proclaim to it, uh, to announce to it a message that God had given him. And so in chapter one, uh, Jonah call, was called to the evil Assyrian capital city of Nineveh. It was the Assyrians were the world power at that time. And Nineveh was particularly known as a city full of wicked people and violent people. Jonah going to Nineveh would be very similar to a, a Christian missionary going to a Nazi extremist during World War II. 
or Genghis Khan and the Mongols during their wicked and ruthless invasions. The call to Jonah was difficult, dangerous, and dividing for the nation of Israel. So instead of praying, planning, and preaching, Jonah started running, he was reluctant, and he was rebellious. And just when we thought he hit rock bottom and he was this repentant prophet that came out of this crazy experience, three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, Jonah gets angry, and he's angry at God. Y'all remember the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son in the, in the Gospels? It should, it should rightly be called the parable of the lost sons, plural, because there's not just one son in that parable. You probably know the story, it's very famous. The prodigal son goes off and he squanders his wealth. He wishes that his father was dead, and so he asks for his inheritance while he's still alive. He goes off to a far country, lives lavishly, spends all of his father's wealth. He finally comes to rock bottom and he goes back to his father. He, he pleads for grace, pleads for mercy, asks for forgiveness, and his father accepts him and welcomes him back home. The end of that parable is the other son from the father. It's the elder son. And at the end, the elder son is not celebratory, happy, and um, just joyful that his brother and this prodigal had come back. Instead, he's angry and he's bitter and he's resentful at his father and at his brother also. Uh, Tim Keller writes about it in Prodigal God. He says this, the first sign that you have become an elder brother with an elder brother spirit is that when life doesn't go as you want, you aren't just sorrowful, but you're deeply angry and deeply bitter. The first sign that you have an elder brother spirit is that when life doesn't go as you want, you're not just sorrowful, but you're deeply angered and bitter. So verse 1 in, in Jonah chapter 4, it says this, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And we know from the context exactly what the it is referring to. Just back up one verse prior to that, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. He was angry at the scandalous mercy and grace of God. And literally, if you read verse 1 in Hebrew, in chapter 4 here, it would say something like this. This evil carried out was a great evil to Jonah. Evil as a verb and evil as a noun, twice repeated in that one verse. And this is not the first use of evil that we see in the book of Jonah. In fact, this is a theme word. It's a repeated element that occurs again and again through this book, and it, and it gives us somewhat of a scarlet thread to trace it and see the unity of Jonah. In chapter 1, the first evil that we heard of was Nineveh's evil. And as a result of their evil, the Lord was prompted to do something about it. He wanted to eradicate the evil that he saw and he knew was happening in Nineveh. Later on, it was the sailors who asked Jonah on whose account has this evil come upon us? And the sailors want to eradicate, they want to do everything they can to erase that evil. In chapter 3, the people of Nineveh repented of their evil. In chapter 3, again, at the end, it's God who relented of the evil or, or the disaster, is how we would translate that, that he had planned to do to them. It's interesting when you look at the book of Jonah 
that God's anger is cooling and Jonah's anger is kindling. As God's anger gets snuffed out and is calmed, Jonah's anger gets worse and worse and burns even hotter. While just about every other living thing is erasing their evil, Jonah is expanding his. And to appropriately describe Jonah's heart, it says, Jonah was angry. You ever wonder how much of you is involved in anger? Anger is one of these emotions, is these feelings, it's, it's this thing that um, pro- I would say the majority of us at least have experienced it personally at some point in time. I'd say a lot of us probably have a reoccurring issue with anger. How much of us is actually involved when we get angry? First of all, anger is not something that happens to you. Anger is something that you do. Anger is not something that happens to you. Anger is something that you do. And when we get angry, our entire being is involved in the process. David Pallison has a book called Good and Angry. I recommend it to you. Uh, it's excellent, excellent perspective from a, a Christian counselor. He says, when we experience anger, our body begins to operate in agitated mode. Our emotions operate in displeasure mode. Our mind operates in judicial mode. And our actions operate in military mode. And so it's not accurate to say to somebody else or to, to recall maybe a time where you felt angry. It's actually more accurate to say that you were angry because you were thinking angry, you were saying things out of your anger, and you were acting angry all at the same time. Every part of you is involved in anger. Anger is far too often a weapon used to defeat others. When we are angry offensively, we use anger to both intimidate and to manipulate. Defensively, we turn to anger as a shield. We think we're actually protecting ourselves. But without a shadow of a doubt, it's not the body, the mind, or the actions that's the most concerning. Anger goes wrong when we go godlike. Anger goes wrong when we go godlike. Anger is the justice emotion. My will be done effectively replaces your will. God's will be done. The word for anger in in chapter 4, verse 1, literally means to burn. It's It's a word of passion. One writer put it this way. I think this is great. He said, sometimes anger comes across as flat, chilling, and calculated, not agitated, heated, and impulsive. But if you poke around long enough, you will always get down to fire in relation to anger. Why did Jonah get so high and mighty about his anger? You might be a religious person if when people get healed, you get angry. Number two, when not in control, you start complaining. You might be a religious person if when people get healed, you get angry. You also might be a religious person if when you are not in control, you start complaining. Look down at verses 2 and 3, chapter 4. And he prayed to the Lord, speaking of Jonah here, and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, 
For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And all of a sudden, prophets making ultimatums to God. Verse 2 begins this way. It says, Jonah prayed to the Lord. And this is a very technical term for prayer. It's the same word for prayer that you saw in Jonah chapter 2, when he prayed from the belly of the fish. In fact, this is the only two occurrences of that word for prayer in the entire book. And it's meant for us to juxtapose these two prayers next to each other, to compare and to contrast them. Um, it invites us to, to reflect on the prayer in chapter 2 of Jonah to this prayer in chapter 4 of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 2, the prophet prayed with thanksgiving to God for his personal deliverance. In Jonah chapter 4, the prophet play, prayed to complain about God because of Nineveh's deliverance. And, and here's the million-dollar question, because we're going to slow down and take the most time out of chapter 4 in Jonah for a very specific reason. Jonah's story has four chapters in it. We're in the fourth here. I, know, I don't know if you know this, but I have a master's degree from Dallas Seminary. And it, I, one of those great and wise things that I know that other people just don't know is that Jonah has four chapters. And we're in the fourth chapter of Jonah. And this is the last chapter of Jonah. Why do we learn about Jonah's motive at the very end of the book? Why don't we learn about this material back in chapter 1, or back in chapter 2, or even chapter 3? Why does, why does the narrator, seemingly Jonah, as Brian told us, why does he wait until the very end of the story, the very last chapter of the story, to tell us why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place? And one commentator put this so well. I think this is really extremely important for us to understand. The author has aroused the reader's curiosity by withholding this information until now, this explanation of Jonah's motives, ensuring that the readers will pay close attention to this specific dialogue. And then he says, the author is about to reveal the key theological issue of the book, and he doesn't want readers to miss it. In other words, when we read chapter 1 at the beginning, we're all curious. We don't know exactly why Jonah went and fled from the presence of the Lord. It builds the suspense. It builds the curiosity in our minds. Finally, when we get to the end of the book and we, we do see it and it's revealed to us, we stop and we pay really close attention to it because this is the key theme. This is what Jonah's been learning the entire time. This is why he was running away from his call. We, um, my family grew up in Wisconsin. We just actually went recently this summer to a cousin's wedding, and I got to saw, I got to see the house that my mom grew up in, uh, my grandparents owned. I think it, when they sold it, finally it was uh, just a couple blocks away from Henry, Henry Vilas Zoo, which is Madison's free zoo over there. Um, I think they bought the house for about 60000 or something. Today it's worth 500000 They rent it to university students. It's really crazy. It's just a crackerjack house. And we used to go from Milwaukee to Madison all the time, and, and my dad would take us back to the little house that he grew up in that was really close to the campus. 
of Wisconsin. And, and the reason why he did it, and the reason why we went back and saw Grandma and Grandpa's house this last time we went, is just to personally and, and kind of uh, reflectively think about the humble beginnings that my mom and my dad experienced when they grew up in Madison. They remembered their upbringing. They remembered the past. They remembered the blessings that they had, even though both of them were, uh, came from very poor situations. When you read verse 2 in Jonah, does that verse sound familiar to you? If, if you have margins in your Bible, if you have cross-references, you're probably going to see some cross-references to other Old Testament books in Jonah chapter 4. Specifically, these, these verses come out of Exodus, chapter 34, 6 and 7. We can read it there. We can read it here. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said to you? I was yet in my country that I knew you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Here's where that comes from in Exodus 34. This is the first place that that's stated in the Old Testament. Many scholars believe it's the first creed of Israel. This would have been their first statement of faith. These were the essential truths that they believed about their God that distinguished them from every other nation and every other God in the pagan religious world of the ancient Near East. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says, The Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Here's parts of this verse that Jonah doesn't reflect. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And the verse goes on to say, even to the third and fourth generations, he will by no means clear the guilty. Now, so here's, here's what happens. Exodus 34, again, is a, a central, a key text in the Old Testament. It's actually the, this is the story where Israel builds the golden calf. Moses goes up on the top of Mount Sinai. He's away for 40 days and 40 nights. And all the people below at the base of the mountain think that Moses is dead. It's been 40 days and 40 nights. Really, he's just up in the presence of God, and he's getting the tablets of stone. He's about to bring them back down the mountain. And before he can even get back to the base of the mountain with those tablets, the Israelites had formed a golden calf. They were worshiping it. They were partying and celebrating and singing songs to this pagan God who had delivered them from the, from the Egyptians and redeemed them from Egypt. Moses comes down, and God literally wants to start all over with Moses. He's had enough of the Israelites. And he asks Moses, you want me to start over just with you? And Moses pleads with him based on the covenant promises that he has made to his ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to keep your faithfulness to the people of Israel. Do not leave us. Do not take your presence away from us. And he pleads with the Lord three times, do not take your presence from us. And he says, show me your glory. Does you remember that story? And God says to him, listen, Moses, uh, I can show you your glory, but it would kill you. So here's what I'm going to have you do. 
I'm going to have you go back in the cleft of the rock, and my glory will pass by before you. And so Moses, here he is. He's in the cleft of the rock. There's no report about what he saw, only what he heard. As he's in the cleft of the rock, begging and pleading for God not to leave his people and to show them mercy and compassion, he hears Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And the character of God is revealed as gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousands. In the context of Exodus 34, Moses went up to Sinai above. The people below at the base were making a golden calf. They were idolaters. You remember the, remember the prayer that Jonah prayed in chapter 2? Those who serve idols forsake the chesed, the loving kindness of God. He's probably referring to the sailors in chapter 1. Do you find it interesting that the Israelite people were forgiven of idolatry in the past, and now Jonah doesn't want to forgive the idolatry of the Ninevites in the future, in the present tense? You find it interesting that his history, his family is replete with forgiveness after mercy, after grace from God, and yet Jonah can't seem to let that go when it comes from the pagans, from the Ninevites, from the sailors in the story. Moses comes along and pleads for God to forgive. Jonah comes along and gets angry when God forgives. And on top of that, he has a pick-and-choose religion. He picks the beginning of Exodus 34, 6, and he forgets the end of Exodus 34, 7. Because God will visit the iniquity of the people, and he will judge the people who are guilty to the third and fourth generation. Jonah doesn't want to, he doesn't want to look at that. He just takes the, uh, a version of, of Judaism that he wants to take, and he puts everything else to the side. What's the result? Jonah uses his life as a bargaining chip. He makes an ultimatum with God. It's either me or the Ninevites. I would rather die than watch you give them grace and mercy. You might be religious if. When people get healed, you get angry. And when you're not in control, you start complaining. Number three, you might be religious, religious if. When unable to forgive, you continue judging. Many of you know um, I played a lot of golf when I grew up uh, in Wisconsin. And um, man, I was in golf, there's any ath athletic competition really, there's guys that are just like freaks of nature who they can make a small adjustment on their swing and all of a sudden they hit every ball perfectly and they don't have to go out, and they don't have to practice much at all. I was not that kind of a golfer. I was the guy that was termed what we, we call a grinder. What that means, if I want to make just a, a small little change to my swing, I've got to grind at it. I've got to hit and develop a habit for at least 21 days until I can finally get rid of that, just that small little thing. And so over and over again, as I played golf, and, and it, Basically, my story competing in any sport was I was a guy who wasn't as talented as everybody else was going to be, but I could outwork people. I grinded. That was how I competed. 
For me to change one small thing, it took a lot. If something needed to change, in other words, it wasn't going to happen quickly. If something needed to change in anything, it wasn't going to happen quickly. I love what one pastor wrote about Jonah. He said, Jonah stands as a warning that human hearts never change quickly or easily, even when a person is being mentored directly by God. Human hearts, that might be a little strong there. I would say rarely change quickly or easily, even when a person is being mentored directly by God. Chapter 4, 1 through 4, answers a really important question. Why did Jonah run from the presence of the Lord in the first place? And just like so many other places where we see this in the Bible, Jonah had idols in his heart, but they are very subtle, they are surprising, and they are complex. And I love how Tim Keller breaks this down in Counterfeit Gods. He's got a chapter on Jonah. He said, Jonah had a personal idol because he wanted ministry success more than he wanted to obey God. Number two, Jonah had a cultural idol because he put his own national interests of Israel over the spiritual good of the Israelites. Number three, he had a religious idol of moral self-righteousness. He felt superior to the Ninevites, and so he didn't want them, didn't want to see them saved. In other words, and I think this is, I think this is key, because I think this is where, where his heart is, or was. Jonah's fierce love of country morphed into a powerful idol that spiritual blinded him to the grace of God. In other words, Jonah loved his country more than he wanted to see people that weren't his countrymen saved by the grace of God. Because of the self-justifying nature of the human heart, he saw his own culture, his own class, as superior to everybody else's. And for that reason, verse 4 is a very straight, simple question. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Do you have a good reason for this? The, uh, the translations are, are a little bit different in its nuances. You're going to read something like, do you have a right to be angry? You might have something in your Bible that says, do you have a good reason to be angry? The NET says, are you really so very angry? Emphasizing the intensity of Jonah's anger. It's a, a hyphil stem that's, that's written as an infinitive absolute for you grammarians out there. This is a strong, strong word for anger. Are you really this angry about people who trusted me? What's happening is that the anger seen on the outside of Jonah is revealing the deeper issues that are on the inside of Jonah. They're revealing his heart. And so if you have a hard time controlling your anger and you see another person who struggles with a fit of anger, you would probably tend to be pretty forgiving with that person because you know and you experience anger as an issue in your own life, and so you're quicker to forgive and show grace in those areas. Jonah likely does not see himself as part of a bigger family of people with struggles and idols and deep issues. He thinks that his issues and and his people are much better than the Ninevites and people apart from God. He's trapped by bitterness, he's trapped by his resentment, and he's extremely intensely angry with God because of it. One man has put it this way. 
It's impossible to forgive somebody if you feel superior to him or her. Sometimes the hardest people to forgive is ourselves, even. Jonah's struggling with it. What do we do? What do we do with these first four verses in Jonah? Just a couple points of application. Number one, typically people don't lose their desire to live unless they have lost their meaning in life. Typically people don't lose their desire to live unless they have lost their meaning in life. In Jonah chapter 4, there's an angry prophet who has lost his meaning in life. And it begs the question, where was Jonah looking for that meaning as the story unfolds? Jonah's meaning, identity, and his significance were in something temporary, not eternal. He found more meaning and significance in his nation that was superior and better to every other nation. And so when God contrasts that with uh, the people of Nineveh, all of a sudden that meaning was torn into pieces. He believed his ethnicity was more deserving than others' ethnicities. He believed his own religious life was more justifying, self-justifying than everybody else's religious life. And when he learned that none of that was true, he became, again, extremely angry. Jonah totally missed the grace of God because he couldn't see the radical self-centeredness of the human heart that existed in in and of himself. I I keep coming back to this verse in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. I think it's, it's so good. He, speaking of Christ, died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jonah also tells us, number two, as we apply this text, to to beware of an unforgiving spirit. Beware of an unforgiving spirit. Usually anger and bitterness and resentment is the result of something that hasn't been forgiven in the past. Problems don't get better with age or neglect. So many times in ministry I've personally seen surface issues develop with different contexts, different situations, and different people that are ultimately rooted in a problem of not being able to forgive somebody. Beware of an unforgiving spirit. When you hold on to something, you cannot forgive something. The person that you will hurt the most is yourself. The person that will be eaten the most is yourself. Ken Sandy's got a great thought in his book, Peacemakers. He says, Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving people in the world. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It is not a passive process. It is an active engagement. It is an event, and it is a process. One man said that unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping that others will die. die. Unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping that others will die. If you find yourself getting mad and giving other people history lessons about what they did wrong in the past, if you keep a record of wrongs, and you keep bringing up over and over and over again, you might have an unforgiving spirit. Forgiving people means letting go. It means releasing that. It means remitting a payment that was due. And forgiveness will always cost you something. It always costs the forgiver something. Remember from the New Testament, God has forgiven us all of our sins, 
Not some of them, he's forgiven us all, Colossians 2.13. That means past, present, and future. And he's also called us to forgive other people as we have been forgiven in Christ. There's nothing that God hasn't forgiven already in your life when you trust him. He's forgiven all of it. Who are we to withhold forgiveness, to develop anger, bitterness, and resentment to other people because we can't forgive them? Jonah's uh, really, really great that Brian came up here and rehearsed the story of Jonah at the beginning. This is a prophet who we learn from his mistakes. We see what he did. We know that what he did is not in line with the other prophets from the Old Testament. We know that it's not in line with Christ-like motivations, behaviors, and actions. Jonah is also the prophet that was, that was likely transformed, enough so that he wanted to record even his failures for a record for Christians for, for millennia afterwards. And Jonah is a prophet that will ultimately tell us that the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God is not particular for specific people groups, nations, ethnicities, situations, or individuals. The grace and the mercy of God is specific for everyone, every context, every people group, no matter what the situation is, no matter what needs to be forgiven. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Jonah learned some hard lessons. And so let's learn from Jonah and take the gospel message to the least deserving. For some reason, that's, that's who God uses to build his kingdom and build his church. And he'll do great and marvelous things in the city of Tulsa if we'll trust him and take this message to those who desperately need it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, all of us, because of sin, have a propensity. We have a default mode to turn back to a religious works mentality, um, prejudice, biases, these things that Jonah, we see Jonah experiencing on the pages of Scripture are far too common in our own human heart. Every act of sin is essentially not believing in you and believing that we can save ourselves. Help us to identify those areas in our heart um, where we are exhibiting the characteristics of Jonah. Make those issues and those situations aware to us so that we can repent of those things, confess them, and be drawn closer and back to you into full fellowship with you. Help us to learn from Jonah's mistakes. Um, help us to, uh, to think deeply about the transformation that Jonah probably experienced in his own life and what you did to get a hold of his heart. God, we thank you that uh, the gospel is not just for us and for our situations and for our sins, but as for the whole world who doesn't know you, give us a heart, a boldness, a courageous compassion to share this message of grace and forgiveness with those who desperately need it. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.